If you will, go ahead and open up your Bibles, Colossians chapter 2. Not too long ago, we finished Colossians chapter 1, the glory of Christ, and now we move into holding fast to Christ, who is our head, in chapter 2. We've got a a big task uh, in these 15 verses, and so let's ask the Lord's help today. Father in heaven, uh, we come to you needy. We pray that you would minister to us, strengthen us uh, to have your scriptures read and explained and applied to our hearts. Help us to think well. Help us to wrestle with this uh, in good ways that we might be changed because of the truth of Christ, uh, that we might be assured in him uh, that you would sanctify us during this time, correct us, reprove us, encourage us, knit our hearts together in love because of Christ during this time. Help me as the preacher, and we offer this uh, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, how do you, how do you know that you are saved? How do you know that you're not going to just walk away from the faith? How do you know that you're going to make it to the end? All those beautiful things that we sang this morning. How do you know that what you believe is actually the truth? Well, I've got two answers. Christ and His church. Christ and His church. And we're going to look more of what that means in, in this chapter, uh, chapter 2. And so, uh, in terms of the occasion and the purpose of this letter, I'll just refer you all to Justin's sermon from Colossians 1. Lots of good details and information there, and there's no need for us to, to go into that uh, this morning as we have so much to cover. But I will say this in terms of what is happening in this letter to the, the Christians in Colossae. Well, Paul is giving a clear vision of the person and the work of Christ as the thing that's going to protect them against false teaching and off-base practices. A clear vision of Christ is what's going to protect them and keep them from false teaching and off-base practices. And so Paul's going now in chapter 2 to give even greater personal detail of how Christ is actually that antidote to apostasy and to false teaching. And if I had this morning, which I'm about to summarize Colossians in one sentence, uh, it's this. Christ is sufficient for cosmic and personal redemption, and we are alive through Him and for Him. Christ is sufficient for cosmic redemption, all of creation, for personal redemption, and we Brothers and sisters are alive through His work and for His glory. So the theology of uh, Colossians 1, uh, 1 through 14, we certainly have essentially, uh, look at verses 13 and 14. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of light. That's what is just dripping in all of his prayers and his thanksgiving and his greeting is that thought. The Lord has delivered us from darkness into light. And then he goes to to just talk of the preeminence of Christ Jesus. Uh, Pre-incarnate glory image of God, firstborn of all creation. And not only that, but he is uh, the firstborn from among the dead. Head of the church over all rule and authority. 
And then right before chapter 2, he talks about his own ministry to the church and then our ministry to one another to present each other mature in Christ with the law and with the gospel, warning and teaching each other. And so now we move to uh, chapter 2. And Without going any further, let's read uh, the first 15 verses of chapter 2 for our consideration this morning. These are the perfect, holy, infallible words of God. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and by empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And we thank God for his words uh, here in Colossians chapter 2. Again, uh, what we're going to look at today, big theme, Christ is sufficient and we are rooted, built up, and established in Him because we don't have life apart from Him. Christ is sufficient, and we are rooted, built up, and established in Him because we don't have life apart from Him. So I have three truths that I want us to dig up out of our text today, and those three truths are this. You won't be surprised, number one, Christ is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 there. Number two, only in and upon Christ are we rooted, built up, and established together. Only in Christ, in, excuse me, only in and upon Christ are we rooted, built up, and established together. That's verses 6 through 7. And then looking from verse 9 to the end of our consideration, verse 15, we're going to see number three, in Christ we are complete lacking nothing. In Christ, we are complete, lacking nothing. So let's just jump right in, brothers and sisters, and look at how Christ is sufficient. 
from verses 1 through 5 uh, of chapter 2. So Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, which would be a city right next to Colossae, and for all those who've not seen me face to face. Paul says, I have a struggle. This word is conflict. Uh, And he's like, "I I want you to know how great a conflict that I have going on for you. He's not seen these Colossian Christians and, or the Christians at Colossae. They've not seen him. And like, what a comfort it would be uh, in, in the early church, right? Lots of persecution, lots of struggle, uh, lots of despair to, to fellowship with Paul himself face to face, heart to heart. How, what a comfort and a joy that would be. But that's not happened. And so he says, I want you to know, although we've not seen each other, I'm struggling for you. Paul is is in conflict with God, if you will, in earnest prayer and writing to to see these brothers and sisters be matured in the faith, to not be taken away by false teaching. There's this anxious, fervent prayer and wrestling, this conflict that Paul is having uh, on their behalf. And if you want to know what that that fervency, that that honesty would look like, chapter 1 is a great uh, example of what that prayer and that fighting, that they would grow in the knowledge of Christ so they'd walk in a manner, that they would bear fruit, that ultimately they would not leave Christ who is uh, their redemption. And so then we move to verse 2 where he says, uh, I'm, I'm struggling for you, and this is what he's struggling for, that their hearts may be encouraged, that their hearts may be comforted. How? Being knit together in love for what? To reach all the riches to reach all the riches. So he wants their hearts to be comforted, being knit together. And this comfort and this consolation of their hearts, it's going to come through their being united in love and in faith. In love and in faith. But let's not just skip over uh, how he unequivocally is making clear what's important here. That their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love, what? To reach all the, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding and knowledge of what? Of God's mystery, which is Christ. So what is the unequivocal importance of what he's saying? I'm struggling that you would grow deeper into Christ. I'm struggling here that you would grow deeper into Christ. And this isn't some, you know, mere intellectual, like, I just want you to to say, yeah, this is true. Like, Christ is a real person and like God and stuff. No, 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 no. Uh, this is assurance giving, given by God through faith in Christ that we wouldn't regard this mystery of God revealed in Christ Jesus as some mere theory, as some mere opinion that is works just because we all in here just say that we agree to it. No, 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 no. It's absolute truth. Like we learned in chapter 1, 15 through 21, it's the point of all of existence. Christ himself the redemption that he's accomplished. It's the point, and we are a part of that. This is what, I, I want you to grow deeper into this. Your heart's being comforted, love being knit together on this point, on this point. And the original text here at the, the end of verse 2, uh, it, it actually says the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. And what we have here is a great translation, and this is why. Because God cannot be known apart from Christ. This mystery of God, it's not known apart from Christ. You don't know God apart from Christ Jesus, other than His righteousness that damns us all. 
The Apostle John agrees with this too. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So the entire plan of God in creation, the fall, redemption, and glory, it finds its yes and its amen in Christ Jesus. And so here we see Paul making, again, making the point unequivocally clear. Unequivocally clear. And he continues on. And that's why in verse 3 he says, this, this mystery that's revealed, uh, who is Christ, in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What does it mean that uh, wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ? Well, let's reason together. Our confession, which we affirm, says that God is invisible. He has no body, no parts, or no changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable. He's immense. He, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are eternal. He is incomprehensible. He's almighty in every way, infinite, absolute, holy, perfectly wise, holy, free, completely absolute. And here's what we mean when we say that. Uh, in, in all wisdom and knowledge that reside in God, uh, because He has no parts, because He has no changeable emotions, He is the wisdom that He possesses. He is the very wisdom that He possesses. It's not just that He kind of has it so He can give good advice. He is wisdom. He is knowledge. And yet we see here that the, that wisdom and that knowledge is hidden. It's hidden. Uh, and to uh, agree here with, with a very uh, helpful 16th century theologian, these treasures are not glittering with some great splendor. But they lie hidden under the simplicity of the cross. This wisdom, this knowledge, who is God, God has revealed that. But he's hidden it in Christ. John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Later in that verse, or later in that chapter, He says, The Word became flesh and it dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, full of wisdom and knowledge. See, this is the wisdom of God, brothers and sisters. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us what? What did Jesus reveal to us? Wisdom from God. How? Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that it is written, let no one who boasts, or let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here's the point here. The wisdom, God is wisdom, and He's revealed that in His whole plan of redemption. And what does that look like? The power, the knowledge, the wisdom of God is Christ crucified for sinners. Christ crucified for sinners. Christ crucified for sinners. This is the wisdom of God. And God is also just graciously condescending 
descended and he's had his wisdom written down for us. And it's in this word, his holy scriptures, that Christ is given to us in all power and wisdom and knowledge. Jesus himself says that these scriptures bear witness about him. These scriptures bear witness about him. And this is the power and the wisdom of God, Christ crucified for us. And so what can we take away from this? As we see quickly that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do we say everything about that? No. We don't have time necessarily. We could spend the rest of today talking about that. But I wanted to hit on this one point of how that wisdom and that knowledge is revealed to us in the mystery of Christ, in the mystery of God. The main mystery of God is that Christ died for us. That's what I want us to take away. But also, one last thing here. Trust absolutely no one who wants to say anything about God apart from Christ. Trust no one. There, there are lots of, of cults out there. There's the Word of Faith movement. There's all kinds of things out there that want to peddle Christ. They want to use God. And they are not explaining the wisdom of God as a crucified Savior. Brothers and sisters, it's our only hope here. Apart from a crucified Savior, we don't know God. But we do know God. Because Christ died for us. We've been raised to life with Him. But the people who try to peddle the Word apart from Christ, they're ignorant of the Scriptures. They have no insight. Paul's already argued the divinity of Jesus, but right here he's doubling down that Christ is the entire mystery and the revelation of God. He is the wisdom and the knowledge of God revealed to us. So let's move here into verse 4. He says, I'm saying all this because I don't want you to be deluded away with plausible arguments away from this mystery revealed in Christ Jesus. You see, we, the godly, the Colossae Christians, we concern ourselves with um, the knowledge of Christ because He is amply enough. Christ is enough and all the scriptures are about Him. It's in Him that we're justified, sanctified, and glorified. And, and, and I want you to know all that, Paul says, because this shuts the door to all other arguments away from this. It's given a clear picture of Christ to shut the door against false teaching. These errors do include idolatry. They include wicked opinions about God. And, and honestly, these things happen because people despise the simplicity of the gospel. And they want to aspire to something higher. And what we find in uh, Paul's writing in this false teaching is that, is that, yeah, they wanted to go above and beyond Christ, deny His deity, and then add into some philosophy, a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Judaism, and let's come up with something. No, Christ crucified for us, Paul says. This is the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And as he prayed in chapter 1, we want to grow deeper into that. It's growing deeper into Him that we walk in a manner worthy of Him and that we're never taken away. And so Paul is, is rejoicing now, we see uh, in verse 5. For though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit. Rejoicing. What's he rejoicing over? To see their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. Their good order, their, their good arrangement, their orderly condition. And we should certainly understand this to be the corporate church gathered in an orderly fashion to, to do what a congregation is supposed to do, guard and protect the truth, protect one another, discipline one another, guard one another, uh, and then also even 
we'd have to understand their moral lives, their personal lives. Oftentimes when, a, when false teaching gets into the church, we find ourselves doing foolish things out in the world. So an orderly condition, right, their orderly state in here keeps us from running off into foolishness personally. So those two things, I think, should be in our mind when we hear, when Paul's rejoicing in their orderly fashion. And I think we can praise the Lord for the good things he's done here at CBC to have orderly fashion. And so I encourage you all to keep uh, guarding one another, brothers and sisters, and pray for your pastors that we would shepherd well, equip you for the work of the ministry, and to, to, to give ourselves to the preaching of the word, the study of the word, and to praying for you guys. And so the next thing he says is the firmness or the steadfastness of their faith. The firmness or the steadfastness of their faith in Christ Jesus. And these two things, their orderly arrangement, their good order, and their steadfastness go together and they affect what they believe and how they live so they wouldn't be persuaded from the truth. And this is certainly a sign of maturity. Their hearts being knit together on the foundation of Christ Jesus crucified for them, the wisdom and the power of God, so that they may stay there in order to reach all the riches of full assurance of the knowledge and wisdom of God. So what else can we take away from this uh, section here? Well, protection against false doctrines and perseverance in the faith is rooted in the church corporate is rooted in the church corporate. Two things happen through the corporate gathering and what we do together. How we're saved from a life of selfishness and individuality into the body of Christ with a greater purpose. Two things happen. Maturity and unity. It doesn't happen apart from the church of Christ. It doesn't happen apart from the local church. Maturity, number one, is the assurance in the sufficiency of Christ. You wanna, we, to, to grow in maturity means that we grow in believing that Christ is enough. Immaturity is looking at ourselves to find something that would please God. Let me look into my own heart or my own affections or my own actions and maybe I can offer those up to the Lord that He might be pleased. That's immaturity. We're growing away from that into the sufficiency of Christ living in the freedom that He's provided for us. Immaturity is also just to forget the truth. We see who we are as the law shows us. We run to Christ Jesus and we're living in that freedom. And then we walk out of here and completely forget it. That's not what we want. But week after week after week, the Lord uses these ordinary means of grace to keep us from that type of life. And then number two, so that was maturity, unity. Because we are all in equal need of grace because we're imperfect people with a perfect Savior, we look to nothing and no one else to save us. We look outside of ourselves to Christ to save what's wrong in us, always, all the time. We look to Christ, uh, and our hearts are knit together. We together, locking arms, looking to Christ. Our hearts are knit together. It's not our skin color or our racial diversity that unifies us. It's not our socioeconomic status that knits our hearts together in love. It's not our parenting styles or the way we school our children that we're built together as one body on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the strong personalities of the pastors. It's not the charisma of the preaching that unifies us, brothers and sisters. It's Christ Jesus in the place of sinners. It's Christ for you. It's Christ for you. And as we gather together, the Lord will be faithful to us 
that maturity and unity will happen. Maturity and unity will happen. And it is in our unity that we don't stand aloof. We learn from Obadiah. Let's not be like Edom. Let our brothers and sisters just get taken over by the world or their own desires and do nothing and stand by. No. We're not going to let each other wander into foolishness or false teaching without warning. We're going to protect one another. You want to be godly? Ask yourself this question. How am I protecting my brothers and sisters? How am I present to their needs? How am I fighting for them? We are patient with one another, brothers and sisters. We're not going to slander one another. We're going to be quick to apologize. We're going to be quick to forgive. We're going to assume the best in one another. We're going to defend one another. Defend one another, first and foremost, before ever doubting that someone's done something wrong. We're going to pray for one another. Like Paul's doing here, we're going to struggle for one another. You get to the end of your life and you struggle for each other, you will not regret it. You will not regret it. That is a holy, godly life, brothers and sisters. You live in this church and you struggle for one another as we are only trusting in Christ alone. We don't do any of that to earn God's favor. We do that because we have a new life. Because we got all His favor. And we do none of this in our own power. If you put your eyes on verse uh, 29 of, of chapter 1. For this I toil, Paul says, struggling with all His energy. That He powerfully works within me. We're not going to do the best job at this. But by God's grace, good things will happen because He's working in us. So just try. Just try. None of us have the, the best ability to do this for one another. But He is working powerfully in us. And so, brothers and sisters, that was number one. Christ is sufficient. A little bit broad there, but He is sufficient. And that's why, truth number two, only in and upon Christ are we rooted and built up and established together. Because He is sufficient, we are rooted, built up, and established together. To say it a different way, there is one hope for sinners. And the only type of person in this church right now is a simple one. Uh, and the church is founded upon Christ. And that is why uh, and Christ is our mechanism in the church of perseverance in the faith. We're rooted, grounded upon Him. He is our mechanism of perseverance. So put your eyes on verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in Him. So walk in Him. Uh, as you receive Christ Jesus, we learned in chapter 1 that Epaphras was a faithful minister of Christ Jesus. He was giving them Christ in their place, in whom all wisdom and knowledge is hidden. Right, And he says, as you receive that, walk in it. So the first metaphor that, that Paul kind of uses here is that the truth, who is Christ, is like a path to be walked upon. Right? You stay on this path, meaning trust in Christ alone, and you will never experience the judgment of hell. You will never experience the judgment of God on your sin because Christ has taken it. Right? So as you receive Christ in your place, your only hope, don't leave that. Why would you put your hope anywhere else? There is nowhere to put it. Anywhere else we put our hope uh, leaves us damned. So he's like, stay walking on the path. As you received it, Christ for you, with the simple faith of a child, he's enough. We stay on that path. We stay on that path. 
And then verse 7 is the second metaphor. So we're going to, as we receive Christ, we're going to walk in him and we're going to be rooted. We're going to be rooted. So a deep rooted tree. So like a tree whose roots are so deep that it doesn't matter what size hurricane comes through Florida, it's not moving. The roots are so deep, the tree is so healthy, nothing can, can, can shake it. So although our battle is not against flesh and or our battle is against flesh and blood and against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces and against heavenly places, that's a, that's a big storm there. That's, that's a lot of war. But because we're fixed on Christ, we will never be moved. Ever. Ever be moved. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. Till he returns or calls us home, here in the power of Christ we'll stand. We will stay walking on this path. We're rooted, not because we've rooted ourselves, but because he's rooted us in him. Not convinced of the sufficiency of Christ, we're a tree with no roots. We're tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, cunning craftiness, and deceitful schemes. That's Ephesians 4. Uh, actually, we might not even become a tree with no roots. Nonetheless, Christ has planted us in himself, and we are fixed there. And deep roots doesn't mean that we never doubt. It doesn't mean that our faith isn't often weak. It means that our only hope is Christ. And we're going to grow in the knowledge and revelation of Him through the church. The hope that you have might be small, but the work of Christ is big enough to fulfill all righteousness and all the punishment the law requires on your behalf. That faith might be small, but the object of your faith, Christ, is always enough. He's sufficient. It's not you that makes your faith work. It is Christ, His death, His life, that becomes yours through faith. And then number three, the third metaphor here is uh, established. Established in the faith. Speaking of a firm foundation. A house that will never fall because the foundation is sure. Knowing with a bad foundation, the house doesn't stay long. Or a tall building definitely uh, won't last long. Quickly, what do we take away from this? Christ Jesus, as we've already said, is the foundation. He's the solid rock on which we stand. But not only that, but He is the building itself. We are the body of Christ being built together into a dwelling place by God, by the Spirit. For God, by the Spirit. So He's the foundation. He's the building itself. And He's the builder. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Christ is sufficient, brothers and sisters. Later on in chapter 2, we learn that Christ is the one through whom the whole body is nourished and knit together. And so all of that, walking in that path as we received Him, rooted and built up, established in Him, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. Mainly, we want to make sure that the knowledge of all this doesn't puff us up. If it does, we don't understand the truth. 
If we walk around, thank God that I'm not like these sinners. It shows that we, we don't understand. Knowledge of Christ creates in us a love for God and a love that builds up because we haven't deserved anything we've been given by Him. We've done nothing but receive by His grace. So abounding in thanksgiving, when we grow deeper into this knowledge, it doesn't puff us up. It knits our hearts together in love so that we build each other up. He delivered us. We didn't deliver ourselves. We did nothing to receive, and we have everything for life and godliness and eternal life. All a gift. Church, we have much to be thankful for. We've got no reason not to abound in thanksgiving. And then moving on here to verse 8. Again, all of that, and see to it, by what? Staying in the truth, walking in it, rooted, built up, all of which is God's work in our life, and we don't leave it. We stay here. Christ is enough. He is sufficient. That's how we see to it that no one takes us captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world. This philosophy, excuse me, philosophy based on reason, which isn't bad, but I've heard it put this way. Reason doesn't work with the gospel. It works great with the law, right? But, but 1 Corinthians 1 that we read earlier tells us that the cross, is, the cross is foolishness to the world. The cross of Jesus doesn't really work well with reason and philosophy. And if philosophy, although it can be used in good ways, if it takes us captive over and against Christ, it's bad. You can't reason to the gospel. And when you try, you muddy the waters. And so it's the mystery of God, after all. Not the reason or the philosophy that we can get to. It's the mystery of the creator of the universe. Uh, our philosophy just doesn't fit in with that. Empty deceit here. You know, they say that they have riches and understanding, but it's empty because we've already been told that all riches of wisdom and understanding are hidden in Christ. You want wisdom, you want understanding, it's in one place. Christ Jesus. Moving on here. Human tradition. This is tradition that's been born in the brains of men. These are men who, who don't know the Lord Jesus, want to open the Scriptures, and they have no idea what to say, so they make things up. They try to use this as maybe a science book or a history book or this, that, and the other without understanding that it's all a testimony of the Lord Jesus. Again, that's human tradition. Elemental spirits of the world. These are, these are like the outward and carnal religions of like a, a Judaism or a heathenism. Like these are just the things we do as a part of uh, this thing that we follow, right? So, I think that's very simple here. We're not going to be taken captive by that. How? Because we're rooted and established in the Lord Jesus. So, number one, Christ is sufficient. Number two, it's only in and upon Christ that we're rooted and built up, established together. And these are true. And they're the remedy against all errors of false teaching because in Christ we lack nothing. Number three, in Christ we are complete, lacking nothing. So, hope everybody's good. We're going to dive deep into some, some pretty hefty stuff here. It's going to be real sweet. May the Lord bless us. We're going to put on our thinking caps, take a breath, and let's just keep pounding it here. So now Paul's going to give two reasons why Christ uh, 
is actually the remedy against our error. Number one in verse 9. In him, the whole fullness of deity bodies uh, dwells bodily. We've dealt with this in chapter 1, 15 and following. And so I'll summarize this. What he's saying is Christ is a remedy because he's God. He is God. All this other religion wants to say that Christ isn't God, but he's unique, but he's not God. No, he is God. And then number two in verse 10, we have been filled in him. We've been made complete in him. And then the end of verse 10, who is the head of all rule and authority, that's essentially saying he's God. But I think Paul's adding that in there because the false religion wants to kind of worship angels and worship these authorities and rulers. And what he's saying is, no, Jesus is God. We are complete in him, and he actually trumps all spiritual anything you want to bring up. Okay, So that's, that's kind of that argument there. So how are we made complete? He's God and we're complete in Him. That's how we fight error. We've kind of discussed some of that, but how are we complete in Christ? I'm glad that you asked that because that's what Paul is now going to answer for us. In verse 11 and 12, here's what he says. Regeneration and faith. We've been, we, we are complete in Him through regeneration and faith. Verse 11 says, In Him you were circumcised. That's a, that's a passive verb there. Something happened to you. He's saying you didn't do anything, but something was done to you by another. And it's, it's interesting that he's bringing up circumcision to Gentiles when they, they might not have the biggest context here. But remember, God has always worked through covenant. That's the way he's revealed himself. That's the way he's chosen to, to deal with human beings. And for his chosen people, one of the ways that you participated in that covenant was circumcision. It was a sign of God's covenant with Israel to make them a people, to give them a land, and eventually an everlasting king and an everlasting kingdom. But really, it pointed to their need to love God with all their heart and have their sin removed from them, which is something that they couldn't do for themselves. They had to love God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul, with all their strength, keep all of God's commandments, and, and have their sin removed. Okay, well, I'm not sure how to make that happen because they clearly didn't do a great job of loving God with all their heart, all their mind, all their strength. And so what is uh, circumcision, you're right, the cutting off of skin, it ultimately pointed to the need, like we said, to have a new heart that loves God, that loves His law, to have our sin removed for us. And what's shadowed in circumcision done with hands, old covenant, is complete in Christ. It is complete in the circumcision of Christ done without hands. See, circumcision, the sign of participation in the Old Covenant, is abrogated and it's fulfilled by the circumcision of Christ, which is regeneration. And that is the fulfillment of circumcision. And this is a promise that Deuteronomy looks towards, that the prophet Jeremiah looked towards, and Ezekiel looked towards. For instance, Deuteronomy 10. God says to Israel, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and don't be stubborn. No longer be stubborn. Change your heart. Then he says again later at the end of Deuteronomy, the Lord your God is going to circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. The prophet Jeremiah says, circumcise yourselves. The Lord tells them, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah the inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth, like, go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. 
Basically, the Lord says, all right, Israel, if you are going to be faithful, change, you're going to need to change your hearts. You're going to need to change your hearts. Of course they can't. That's why the Lord says through the prophet Ezekiel, I'm going to give you a new heart. 36, 26. I'm going to give you a new spirit. I'm going to put my spirit within you, actually. And I'm going to remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So here's the way that we are complete in Christ. Number one, the circumcision of our hearts. Romans 2, 28, 29 says that for no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is, is one who is one inwardly. The circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the physical. In Philippians 3, Paul also says, For we are the circumcision. But who's that? Who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. <clears throat> what I'm saying is circumcision is fulfilled in regeneration. And that's modeled all over the Old Testament, all over the New. John 3, for example, born of God, born again, born of the Spirit. How did any of this happen? Well, we learned that wherever the Spirit blows, no one knows where it comes from, where it goes, but people are just rebirthed. Just, it just happens. Born of the Spirit, we read today in Ephesians 2, we were dead and then we were made alive in Christ. Titus 3 verse 5, He saved us, how? By the washing of regeneration. What's that? The renewal of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter, again, He's caused us what? To be born again. So how does this rebirth happen? How does this being born again happen? Well, the end of verse 11 tells us, okay? Uh, in Him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So we know that something's been done to us. We've established that that was Jesus. What happened? The putting off of the body of, of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The body of flesh is the entirety of our corrupt nature. You can see Romans 8 for more talk on like our corrupt nature. But the body of flesh, Paul says, was put off from you. And this is the radical effects of the heart circumcision of Christ. When we hear and believe, before we can ever respond in faith, we've got to be made alive. We're dead, laying in a tomb. How in the world did we ever even hear the gospel and believe it and walk out of the grave? The circumcision of Christ, the grace and the mercy of God where we were once dead and He made us alive. This is the circumcision of Christ done without hands. And then we move on to verse 12 here. As he explains further, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Faith is the means right, that comes through our regeneration that unites us to Christ. And baptism is always spoken of by what it signs, by what it represents by faith. It is the physical sign given to the church, given by the church to the people who've been circumcised by Christ, who have responded in faith, and, and, and they believe in the Lord Jesus, and now they confess with the mouth that He is Lord. Not by walking an aisle, not by saying a prayer, but by receiving the sign of baptism that the church gives them. This is where baptism is always typifying what has happened in regeneration. Were you buried with Christ and raised to walk in the newness of life before you were baptized? Of course you were. 
You believed in the Lord Jesus. You were walking a new life and you come to a church and it's like, I need to be baptized. I need to receive this sign and this seal that Christ has regenerated me. I don't know what regeneration looks like. Well, that's why he gave us baptism. You were buried with Christ and you were raised. And he did that directly to your soul. Born again. Born of the Spirit. The reason I'm going to be so strong on this is because baptism does not replace circumcision of the Old Testament. We don't just baptize anybody because they circumcised everyone in the Old Testament. Right? No, 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 no. Baptism is a sign the Lord's given the church to give to those who believe. And so he uses this example that we've been buried with him and raised to walk in the newness of life. Which is, verse, say it this way, verse 12 is an explanation of verse 11. Verse 12 is an explanation of verse 11. You've been circumcised by Christ. What does that look like? Well, you were buried with him and raised in faith. You were buried with him and raised in faith. It's kind of a lot there. I hope that that connected and that encourages you. And so now, those who've been baptized, you look to that baptism as God's faithfulness to you. That you heard the gospel and you believed. At one point in your life, you didn't want Jesus. You didn't care about the law. You didn't care about judgment. You might not believe it. Here's the thing, though. Whether you believe in judgment or not doesn't matter. It's real. Hell is real. Everlasting judgment for sinners. But yet, we've heard the gospel and we've believed it. What a grace from God. What a kindness from God that you sit in here, not on any merits of your own, not on anything you've done, and you've received that sign of baptism because God was faithful to you. Moving on to verse 13. And you, he just further explains this, and you who were dead in your trespasses, we were uncircumcised, dead. He made us alive together with him. But what did he do? He forgave us all our trespasses. You see, in Adam, we have inherited corruption. In the covenant catechism, question 21, we ask the question, did all of mankind fall in Adam's first sin? Answer, yes. All mankind descending from Adam sinned in him and fell with him in the first transgression. Dead. Absolutely dead. You can't kind of push open the coffin, right? We're not floating on top of the ocean looking for some help. We're dead, absolutely dead, doing nothing but, but living for ourselves, doing nothing for God, doing nothing that would help us get any favor for Him, doing nothing that would help us want Jesus. Nothing at all, folks. Many of your testimonies might be like, well, I really never did anything bad. You know, like, just, I never just lived this crazy life. Well, number one, praise God for that, but also that, doesn't, that still doesn't earn you anything. Not living a crazy life doesn't earn you favor with God. You need to be absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. Personal, perpetual obedience to the law. You've got to be like God, holy. We're already off to a good start, uh, except we're dead. You know what to do, but you're dead. So that really doesn't help us. Hey, do something you can't do is, is really what the law says. But there's good news, brothers and sisters. God has made us alive with Him, forgiving all our trespasses, all our corruption in Adam, wiped away. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. And we have been removed from a condemned state in Adam into a resurrected, redeemed, reconciled position in Christ. And God is our Father. Well, how do you do this? Okay, he forgave us. All, he forgave us all our wrongs. So how did he do that? Verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So he just got rid of that. There's a long list of everything I've done wrong. He just threw that in the trash. Said, I'm not going to remember. No. He set it aside. Like I said, he just threw it away. No. He nailed it to the cross, brothers and sisters. Well, what did he nail to the cross? Your sin. Well, how did he do that? Because he nailed his son to the cross and he who knew no sin became sin on your behalf. And he nailed the son. Of, it was God's will to crush Jesus so that he could forget about all your sin, forgiving it, setting it aside, nailing it to the cross in the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, God himself, became flesh, lived perfectly in every way Adam failed. Jesus succeeded for you, suffered obedience, and then the Father nailed him to a tree. The blood of Jesus has washed away all of our sins. The blood of Jesus has washed away all of our sins, and then Jesus was buried, dead. The Father turned His face away from Jesus. You see, if, if we in our state, in our dead state, were to look at God's face, we would die. We would die. And then the Proverbs tells us to seek wisdom and to seek the face of God. But we'll die. But we'll die if we do. So Jesus, who is wisdom, became sin so that the Father would turn from Christ so that now in Him we have all the wisdom we need and we live in the face of God. And we actually search for wisdom and we have the fear of God, which is our foundation. So we never have to fear the face of God. That is wisdom revealed to us. That we never have to be afraid of God. We actually revere Him, know Him, love Him. And... The Lord Jesus got up from the grave, ascended. He sits next to the Father even now. And as He is, we will be like Him. When He returns, we will be like Him. Raised imperishable. And then finally, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Though there's many devils, brothers and sisters, that stand to condemn us and accuse us, They've all been disarmed. They have no charge because Jesus took that charge for us. They're put to shame because Jesus was made shame for us. God's plan of redemption. God's plan is redemption. And He doesn't fail. This is the power of the cross, brothers and sisters. Christ Jesus is enough. He's sufficient. We are rooted established and built up in Him because in Him is our life. Because in Him we lack nothing. 
And so maybe uh, as we kind of head towards a closing here, maybe you fear that your faith may fail. Maybe you fear that your sin, although I understand it's been nailed to the cross, is just going to be too much in the end when I stand before the Father. Well, I am honored to stand up in here and say, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. And He's giving, giving you safety. Giving you safety in His body, the church. Where He is proclaimed week after week. Where those are, you know, our children are baptized into Him by faith as they grow up in the church, where we feed on Him week after week after week, where we protect one another. This is our mechanism of perseverance. This is safety in the local church. Christ is enough. And, you know, Ephesians 3.10, it says that it's through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. All these realities that we just considered today, this is how God is doing that. Because we trust in the one who is above all heavenly rule and authority. And, and yes, he's above, but he's our foundation. He is our building. He is, we are his body. He's the builder. Do you understand that the Lord Jesus is ours? We are alive in him. And so it's, it's kind of a, no wonder that Paul finishes that letter to Ephesians, uh, you know, in chapter 6. To be strong in who? In the Lord. That we might be mighty, know that He has all authority. And He's given it to us. And it's the power of His might, not our own, that we march on, brothers and sisters. And so then He says what? To put on who? Christ. The armor of God. Righteousness. Truth. What is our, what is our battle as we, as we wrestle against not flesh and blood, but against the principalities of this air? Who, who is our foundation? Who are we being built up and established on? Who is our armor? The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. Go read Ephesians 6 and just be encouraged. Because He's enough. And ultimately, we don't leave Christ. We don't leave Christ and we struggle for each other. We struggle for each other. And in this war, I want us to remember this. This is from 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll finish up with this. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality, the resurrection. Uh, 
When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The mystery of Christ is also the victory of Christ. Let's pray together.